This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Today's guest is Mike Phillips. Mike Phillips is the director of the Turner Endangered Species Fund, an organization that he co-founded in 1997 with Ted Turner. Mike is also a former Montana State Senator representing District 31, which encompasses parts of his hometown of Bozeman and the surrounding area. In his work as an ecologist, Mike has spent much of his career studying and implementing the reintroduction of wolves throughout the United States. And in both science and politics, he has never shied away from taking vocal leadership roles involving a wide range of important issues in Southwest Montana and beyond. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Today's topic is environmental leadership lessons on saving a species. And joining us today is former Senator for the Democrats, Director of the Turner Endangered Species Fund, Mike Phillips. Mike has played a key role in wolf conservation and recovery. And Mike is best known for leading a team that reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone Park. Mike, you're very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Hey, William, thank you for having me. This is my treat. Oh, a genuine treat for our listeners as well. And what I want to do is tap into all those lessons you've learned over the span of your career. And I first came across your work around 15 years ago or so on social media. And I was fascinated by your work of reintroducing the wolves to Yellowstone Park. So from this, I want to look at it through lenses of career, leadership, your commitment to the environment, that sense of purpose that you have. And let's start with the career, your career piece. So our listeners would be fascinated. And I was hearing this in a podcast where you spoke about watching National Geographic on PBS as a young boy. Yeah, years ago, and sometimes you're bitten by a bug early in life. And the first bug that bit me was to play professional baseball. My my dad played pro ball before I was born. My brothers and I played ball and through college, and I assumed that I would make a living as a baseball player. And I came to quickly realize a lot of guys play baseball for money. Very few can make a living at it. And I was never going to do either. It was clear. And, but that was my first bug. But alongside that bug of playing baseball, I, I watched when I was 12 years old on my parents' small black and white TV, children and people these days have a hard time remembering back in the day, but in 1970, there were only, at least in the United States, principally three television stations, CBS, ABC, and NBC. And my, my folks had a little bitty black and white television. And I saw on that TV a National Geographic Explorer special 
on the pioneering, truly pioneering work being done by two well-known biologists by the name of John and Frank Craighead. They were twins and they were deeply talented wildlife biologists studying grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park. And at 12 years of age, I said to myself, I want to do that. I want to, if I can't play baseball, I want to do that. And I would have you believe, William, by the time I was about 30, about 18 years later, I had achieved that end. I was in Yellowstone National Park. I was working with a large carnivore, the gray wolf. But in this particular case, I wasn't studying one that was in place, like the Craigheads were studying the grizzly bear, but rather I was restoring a large carnivore that had been extirpated. And so it was it was an intent of mine since I was 12 years old. I, I will say, William, and I don't mean to be arrogant, but, but I, I would have you believe I've never worked an adult, I've never worked a day in my adult life. I, I've been blessed to do something I deeply believe in and actually get paid to do it. And it all started with that television show on my parents' black and white TV in 1970, watching the Craighead study grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park. You mentioned bears then. You've been quite a pioneer yourself and innovative in some of your approaches and risk-taking. Can you tell us about, you were doing some research on bears. Is it, was it in Alaska and you were doing some dentistry work? Do you want to tell our yeah, listeners? I, I did have the good fortune before I studied gray wolves as a young biologist in northeastern Minnesota and in Michigan. And then I had the opportunity to do uh, graduate school research in the far northern corner of Alaska, the, the northeastern corner of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, studying grizzly bears. My, my study aimed to understand grizzly bear behavior and habitat use. What did they do and where did they do it? It was principally a study based on direct observations. That was all being done in anticipation of oil and gas development in that part of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. The question being addressed by a host of studies, of which mine was just one, was what, what would these oil and gas activities do to grizzly bears? Would, would they disrupt grizzly bear behavior and habitat use patterns, for example? So I was really fortunate for a time, several years in Alaska, to study grizzly bears, had some fascinating experiences. And, and I can speak about those, but that's why I was in Alaska studying grizzly bears. It was an attempt to understand the impacts of oil and gas development on, on grizzly bears in the far northeastern corner of the state. And you ask about green teeth. Did you ask about green teeth? Yeah, green teeth, yeah. <laughs> green teeth. For a period of time, I was a member of a capture crew. We would dart grizzly bears from a helicopter, dart them with an immobilizing drug. They'd fall asleep. They'd go under the effect of the drug so that we could collect body measurements, uh, weight and length, et cetera, do a physical examination and attach a radio collar so that once they recovered from the drug, their movements could be documented over the course of several years. That was an attempt to understand denning habits. The principal concern about oil and gas development would be the surface activities during the winter would disrupt grizzly bear denning activities, critically important to a grizzly bear to spend many months in hibernation. My job on the capture crew was to extract a premolar. Bears have teeth very much like ours, very similar dental formula. They've got incisors, they've got canines, they've got molars, very, shaped very much like ours in large part because of their diet. Their molars, for example, look much like ours, principally for grinding material. 
their teeth are bigger than ours, but it's very similar. So my job was to extract a premolar. It's a relatively small tooth. Follows right behind the canine and right in front of the rest of the molar row. If you take a premolar from a grizzly bear and you suction it very finely, you can count growth rings. It's very similar to what you do to age a tree. So extracting a premolar was the step in estimating the bear's age. So I, I was, my, my job, the bear's drug is laying on the tundra. Other people are doing other things. I'm working the dental tools to remove that premolar. Every grizzly bear I handled had a bloody muzzle. They had a bloody muzzle because for a period of time in a late spring, early summer, grizzly bears are out and about. The hibernation's ended. They're out and about trying to put on body weight, trying to get back in good shape. And at that time, also, the porcupine caribou herd is in the same area. And it's a vast area, but the porcupine caribou herd consists of about 120,000 adults at that particular time. The herd size fluctuates, but it's a big herd. Let's assume it's always right around 100,000 individuals. The cow caribou all calve at about the same time, synchronous calving. And the logic there is, oh my gosh, if we all produce calves at about the same time, there's so many calves out on the landscape, the chance of my calf making it is better than if I'm calving all by myself, where my calf would be something unique. Golden eagles are a predator of caribou calves, gray wolves, and caribou calves, and grizzly bears. Grand caribou calves. For a period of time, a couple of weeks, grizzly bears know the porcupine caribou herd is calving, and they go out onto the coastal plain where the calving takes place, and they hunt caribou calves. A caribou are a type of ungulate, a hoofed mammal, that give birth to what we can call followers. A caribou calf, in rather short order, 36 to 48 hours after birth, that caribou calf is a very capable traveler. They've got to be able to follow the herd. That's why we call them followers. Other ungulates, other hooved mammals like deer, give birth to what we would call a hider. A deer fawn, right after birth and for an extended period of time, a deer fawn strategy is not to follow mom. A deer fawn strategy is to hide and give off very little odor. They're very good at hiding and being undetectable. Caribou calves are followers. And grizzly bears know this. So they know they've got a relatively short period of time where they can actually catch these calves and kill them. So I, I'm on the coastal plain. We're darting a bunch of bears. I, we, they, they go down on the tundra. I'm pulling a tooth. All these muzzles were bloody from caribou calf. Killing caribou calves, the muzzles were bloody. You would think, oh my gosh, what a consummate predator. This big grizzly bear weighing 350 pounds is a consummate predator. But when I'd pull the lips back to get at that premolar, all of the teeth were stained green. And they were all stained green because principally the grizzly bear's diet is made up of vegetation. So much vegetation that their teeth were green. Sometimes initial appearances, sometimes first looks can be deceiving. For a short period of time, grizzly bears are very effective predators. But for the most part, they're not. And their body conveys that. Their teeth are not really designed the way a, an ultimate carnivore's teeth are designed. They're more like our teeth. They're generalists in their habits. They're omnivores in their food habits. Even though they've got bloody muzzles, they've got green teeth. That is fascinating. And then you build up all this research then. The reason you were there was due to oil and gas fields. So how did that correlate to the environment there? Was there some 
lessons learned there or was it just to understand the movements and how that might impact on the species? There was a great deal of work done on a host of species. Grizzly bears were just one in an attempt to anticipate what would large-scale oil and gas development mean for the natural world of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And of course, the ultimate conclusion was the natural world wouldn't benefit from developing the oil and gas reserves of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. For the natural world, it would be a decidedly bad idea. Moreover, even though the Arctic Refuge was predicted to hold a lot of oil and gas, there was an easy way to fundamentally recover functionally recover that energy through conservation measures without ever pulling anything out of the ground in the Arctic Refuge. By by turning off lights and using more efficient bulbs and more efficient vehicles, it was easy to do the math that would say the oil and gas of the Arctic Refuge should stay underground. The natural world of the Arctic Refuge should remain undisturbed. That the resource was not worth exploiting. The cost was too high. The benefits were too small. There was another way to skin the cat. Now, uh, fast forward to 2023. That work was done in 1982 and 1983. That was 40 years ago. Since then, you have to be living under a rock to not be aware that the concentration of heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere has become a profoundly difficult problem. The last thing we need to do is develop a pristine setting like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to grab a bit of oil and gas, when in fact there's another way to generate functionally that same gain for energy through conservation measures. Climate change is a most pressing issue, and we don't address it at all by developing in places like the Arctic Refuge. And to this day, 40 years later, I would have you believe that my work and the work of other biologists have helped folks realize the Arctic Refuge should be left alone. So, can I ask you, Mike? 1982, I was five years of age. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, as my entire lifetime and my entire childhood growing up, I was very much aware of CFC gases and all these things. And for you to be working in it then, a lot of people are listening in, is how do you remain so motivated and passionate and resilient and optimistic at times, because when I hear you speak, you're very optimistic. How do you maintain that despite you have all these people that uh, might be thinking about being climate de deniers or even, as you say, the global warming that's happening at a, a, such a rapid rate, though? How do, you, how do you stay focused? Yeah, it's a great question, William, but to some extent, I'm motivated by the scale of the solution. Now, you might wonder, what the hell does that mean? For example, in the United States, I don't need to convince 240 million Americans that climate change is a problem. I need to convince a handful of decision makers. The scale of the solution is manageable. I need to convince a handful of decision makers. That's the scale that really matters. Because most folks just follow along, at least in this country. Most folks are so willing to just follow along most folks don't vote. They're so uninvolved in the decision-making process, they don't even vote. Most folks in this country are so confused about what it means to be a good citizen, they would have you say, they would have you believe, if I cast a vote, I'm a contributing citizen. That's bullshit. 
That's absolute bullshit. The most important thing you can do to be a contributing citizen is cast an informed vote. That's a hard thing to do. For, for a period of time, after I lost my first political campaign, I was a, a, a talk radio host. I was the lone progressive voice on a radio show known as Open Range on KMMS AM 1450. <laughs> I was the lone progressive voice. I love your radio voice. <laughs> no, my radio voice. And, and uh, one, one day I was, we were bemoaning the lack of participation in a city council race for, the, for Bozeman, Montana. And I had this epiphany on air. And I'm going to come back to the scale of the solution for climate change, but this tangential story is useful. Uh, I had this epiphany on air because nobody voted for the in the Bozeman City Council campaign race. And I said, you know what? I said on air, I said, stay the hell home. I hope you don't vote. If I'm the only one casting informed vote, I get to serve as a benevolent dictator. I can make the case that the best form of government is a benevolent dictator. And if you do vote, but you don't pay attention, you just vote because you didn't get a vote, you've just watered down the impact of my informed vote. So if you're not going to invest and learn a bit in order to cast an informed vote, stay the hell home. Now, hold that thought. Back to this notion of the scale. I don't have to convince a whole bunch of people. I need to convince a handful of decision makers because most folks are going to just follow along. I find that inspiring. It gives me the sense of holy mackerel. Hmm, maybe I can have an impact. In 2009, when I was serving in the Montana legislature, I ushered into law the nation's most sweeping piece of legislation concerning geological sequestration of carbon. It still stands, I suppose, if we did a study, as the most sweeping state-based law in the United States about sequestering CO2 in deep geologic formations, geological sequestration of, of carbon. Because of that work, President Obama and his administration invited me to be part of a small group of state legislators working with then the United States Senate on sweeping green energy jobs and climate change legislation. At that particular point in time, President Obama was in office as a Democrat. The Democrats had a large majority in the United States House. The Democrats had a large majority in the United States Senate. In other words, they could run the table. And, and, and they intended to do just that. Uh, and, and the last thing on, on their agenda of doing just that was climate change and energy, green energy jobs legislation. It was following on the heels of the massive attempt to reform health care insurance laws in this country, now commonly known as Obamacare. It actually operated under the official title of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. As that was all taking place, they're exercising their political capital very effectively. A bill had passed the United States House that spoke to a proper view of energy legislation, climate change, and green jobs. It's called the Waxman-Markey Bill. It was headed to the Senate. Fast track to get all of this done and really make keen progress in this country on climate change. At that particular point in time, Senator Kennedy from Massachusetts died. He died. He had been a champion for his entire legislative career as a hallmark senator 
from this political dynasty, the Kennedys, of healthcare insurance and, and helping folks in need when they were ill. And he died. That threw a wrench in finishing the work of Obamacare. A, a further wrench was thrown into the process when, because Kennedy died, Massachusetts held a special election and the Democrats lost the seat. Oh my gosh, Senator Kennedy's being succeeded by a Republican. That turned the power axis in the United States Senate. Now the president had to make a decision. Do I finish Obamacare or do I shift gears and move in the direction of energy and climate change legislation? We're not going to be able to do both because we don't have the lineup in the Senate that we used to have. We don't have the power we used to have. We can still get something passed, but we probably can't get both passed. President Obama made a strategic decision to work on the insurance issue, to work on passing what we all now know as Obamacare. They did that, but they had to have some Republican help in the Senate. That exhausted their political capital. There was simply not enough left in the political tank, not enough gas left in the political tank to do anything on energy and climate change. And in the very next election, Obama got his ass handed to him because the country was frustrated over aspects of Obamacare. The Democrats lost the Senate, lost the House. There's not been a serious discussion about climate change and energy legislation ever since. When I speak about being inspired by the scale of the solution, I'm talking about a handful of people. If Senator Kennedy had not died, they would have got Obamacare done and energy done. If we could have convinced a handful of Republican senators to get Obamacare done and do the energy work, it would have gotten done too. A handful of people make this world go round, not the billions of folks wandering around just following. That inspires me. I think it's fascinating to see all the various different aspects of why things work and, and those few people that have a lot of power, those key decision makers. And that's fascinating to hear how you have access to these people or had access. And again, there's something about, I was listening to your farewell speech and you were talking about your lessons in influencing people. So again, you mentioned your wife, which is really important for you and your family. But also you were talking about stopping a bill at one stage and you were distracting and you were doing all these different things to, to stop the bill. And there was some lessons then from that farewell speech that our listeners might be interested in. Do you mind going into that? Yeah. As I finished 14 years in the state legislature in Montana, I was honored, William, to serve six years in our state House of Representatives and eight years in our state Senate. So I, I have lived for a time in the world of electoral politics, engaging in campaigns and winning campaigns. I've lost campaigns. I've won campaigns. I've been able to sit as a lawmaker. And I was intrigued by the by what I thought was good service. And I saw a lot of really bad service on both sides of the aisle, bad service by Democrats, bad service by Republicans. And mostly bad service was driven by a blindness on the part of individuals to understand that they really didn't know much. I think to be a good servant in the public sphere, there's value in being humble and recognizing at the end of the day, there's a lot I don't know. And if I admit that, it creates this ability to listen. And my fundamental message to my colleagues in the Senate 
as I left my time was to point out that what they knew was not enough to serve Montana well. I, I could make the case that what a U.S. senator knows is not enough to serve the United States well. To serve well, you have to be desirous of understanding what it is someone else knows. That requires that you have this ability to listen. I am of this mind that the only way that ideas can truly compete is if people listen to one another. That's not an easy thing to do. It requires a degree of patience and a degree of humility that is not common in this day and age. And yet, listening and understanding is the only way that ideas can properly compete. And I would have you believe that any legislative arena, the Montana State Capitol, the United States Congress, they simply are great stadiums where ideas compete. And that's it. And if we're not mindful of the power of competition, then we don't do our best work. So I tried to impress upon my colleagues the need to listen to one another, because for the most part, they don't. And consequently, they serve their constituents poorly. I want to go back to your career for a moment. So we've heard about you being your work as a researcher, your conservationist, a senator. And let's go back to your work as a researcher then. You took some very innovative or novel approaches to some of your research. So you did some grant proposals and one included crossbows, female <laughs> products, and some radioactive yeah. stuff. Uh, Can you, so back I, to grizzly bears. Yeah, dude, when I was young, when I was young in 1980, 1981. I, I didn't have I didn't have funding for graduate research. I had to figure something out. It was before I had sunk my teeth into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and a study of grizzly bears to understand behavior and habitat use in anticipation of oil and gas development. That's eventually what I would do. We've talked about that. Before that, I was trying to come up with ideas that would generate some funding so I could do a study. And and, and I had this notion back in the day in the early. 1980s, late 1970s, there was this old wives tale that menstruating women should not hike in grizzly bear country because the odor of menstruation would attract grizzly bears. In, in a predatory manner, the odor would attract grizzly bears. There had been some preliminary research done on polar bears that pointed out that menstrual odor elicited in polar bears the same response as the odor of their primary prey, the ring seal. So it was like, oh my gosh, if you're on your period, you don't go out in the woods. But it's a crazy idea unless it was real. So I proposed a study of the effect of particular odors on grizzly bear behavior. Could we elicit a certain response that might inform whether menstruating women should hike in grizzly bear country or wait until they weren't? To do that work, I had to have some controls and I had to have a way to deliver the odor. And so I came up with a study plan. I came up with a study plan. It was the study plan. It was pretty crazy, actually, dude. I was going to take and make little bitty odor balls, an odor ball, a tiny ball. Let's say a ball about the size of a marble. It would consist of a, a small rock uh, to which I had affixed sphagnum moss. And then I would dip that mossy ball into a vat of hot paraffin, and I would coat that little thing in wax. So now I got a waxy ball with a rock center and a, a moss center. 
I would then take that little ball and I would inject with a needle and a syringe a fluid that would impart an odor when the wax broke. I intended to study water. I'd inject water. I was going to inject toothpaste, a dilute form of toothpaste, because quite often when you're hiking in grizzly bear country, you got toothpaste in your backpack. I might have injected coffee, right? And, and I was going to inject menstrual fluid. <laughs> so I was going to go to the local dorm at the University of Alaska Fairbanks campus. I was going to go to the dorm and I was going to recruit women to help me. Uh, I, I need to collect used tampons. I would then take those tampons and I would distill. It would be mostly blood, but I would distill fluid from the used tampons. And I would then have that fluid and I'd put that in a syringe and a needle and I'd inject it in a ball. So I got all these odor balls with various odors, including menstrual fluid. Okay, fine. Oh, well, I got the odor ball. Now what I do with the odor balls? Having played baseball, I thought I could throw the odor ball. But honestly, I'm not going to be able to throw a small odor ball very far. So that didn't work. I thought, wait a minute, I can deliver these odor balls with a crossbow. I can get a crossbow, figure out some way to attach the odor ball to the tip of the arrow, shoot the arrow out via the crossbow, have it hit the ground firmly near a, a grizzly bear that I could watch with enough force that the odor ball would break, expelling this odor, and the grizzly bear would have a chance to respond. It, it might respond one way to water and another way to toothpaste and yet another way to the so the study design was to go recruit women who are on their period to let me have the use tampons so I could shoot arrows via crossbow at grizzly bears out in the woods. Now, to make all this really interesting, it would have to be done in a very remote setting. So I, well, I didn't want the bears responding to vehicles on the road. And so here I am in the, the deep backcountry of Alaska shooting crossbows <laughs> with odor balls at grizzly bears. It was a crazy ass design. That was not funded. But nonetheless, I was celebrating a, a imagination. Because <laughs> you fall in love with your own idea there when you, you know, first come up that, with it. That's not where it ended. Shit, oh dear, man. Years later, when I was running the Red Wolf program, I was intrigued by this notion. How well would a captive-born adult Red Wolf adapt to life of self-sufficiency in the wild? So fast forward, it gets the grizzly bear work, menstruating women and uh, crossbows and, and Never got funded. So years later, I'm running the Red Wolf Restoration Project. Red Wolf is a, a critically endangered large carnivore. The program I, I was running was the first attempt in the history of mankind to restore a carnivore species that had been determined to be extinct in the wild. So it really was a historic effort. We're letting a lot of red wolves go to try to establish a wild population. We had to start with adult animals that had been born and raised in captivity. Uh, an adult male that was four or five or six years of age that's all we had access to. There were no animals in the wild that we could move from point A to B. We had to start with captive-born animals. I was intrigued by this notion. How would they transition to life in the wild? They lived in captivity their entire lives. They had been fed their entire lives. Many of them had largely lived on kibble, dry dog food. How would they make the transition to learning how to kill deer again, for example, so that they were self-sufficient? And I thought it would be interesting if I could track their food habits on an individual basis. If I'm out in the woods studying wolves, I can pick up their poop. I can pick up their shit. Technically, it's called scat. I can pick up their scat and I can take the scat apart and I can study the contents. I can look at the hairs that are present 
I can look at the bones that are present, and I can typically come up with a really good conclusion. What did they eat? Food habits for wild canids like gray wolves are typically defined by scat analysis. Okay, fair enough. I can pick up turds. That's easy to do. Even a boob like me can say, shit, there's a pile of wolf shit on the road. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to study it later. But I wanted to be able to assign that particular turd to a particular wolf. How could I do that? If I didn't see the wolf poop on the road, I wouldn't know whose scat that was. So I came up with this idea. <laughs> what if I could mark each of these wolves with a unique radioactive signature? <laughs> In other words, I'm going to make these animals radioactive. So when I pick up that scat, I can assess the scat with the proper equipment to determine, up oh, that's cesium-137. That's got to be male 414, because he's the one that's been laced with cesium-137. So <laughs> I work with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and a colleague of mine, and we develop these small shards. They look like a small, thin wafer of glass, about maybe a quarter of an inch uh, by a quarter of an inch squares. These little radioactive shards with a unique radioactive signature and we could place them subcutaneously just tuck them under the skin between the shoulder blades of the red wolf so that incision back up and that little shard of radioactive material would slowly leach into the wolf's body and into this to everything associated with the wolf its urine and its poop and that would allow me then to determine, oh, yeah, that turd belongs to that wolf. And here's how that animal is transitioning to life in the wild compared to this uh, other animal. In addition to shooting uh, tampons at grizzly bears with a crossbow, I, I mean, <laughs> red wolves radioactive. I feel like somebody listening in, there were radioactive wolves like something you'd see in Scooby-Doo. <laughs> And some people might be saying radioactive and the climate and climate change doesn't exactly go hand in hand. Oh, no. And please understand, these were way below sublethal doses of radioactive material. It in no way compromised the health of the wolves, but it did allow for us to it did allow for us to, to identify stuff, byproducts, turds, for example, to individual animals. And ultimately, the conclusion, everybody is going to moving in the direction of wildness in the same manner. They stumble and they stub their toes and they go hungry for a period of time. They're not very good, even under the best of circumstances. And we didn't learn anything too terribly earth shattering, but it was yet another imaginative approach to seizing apart the marvels of the natural world. So speaking of wolves in the natural world, then, so I was fascinated to hear about the work of reintroducing the wolves to Yellowstone Park. So you spoke before about the percentage in America of where the territory that they used to roam and now the minute part of the territory that they cover. Can you tell us about reintroducing the wolves to Yellowstone Park? Because that seems like such a radical idea because the, the Green Party in Ireland talked about reintroducing wolves into Ireland only three or four years ago and it got shot down completely sure. and I yeah, can only yeah. imagine what it would yeah, be I have like. colleagues that are working on the notion of rewilding that they, they they've latched onto that sexy world word rewilding I, I don't use it much I more or less prefer more specific language we 
I have now for 40 years been actively involved in projects that reintroduce imperiled species to restore viable populations. Others would say rewilding, but whatever language you want to use. One of the most stunning examples of restoration ecology, rewilding, did involve the gray wolf in Yellowstone National Park. I'm not sure that much of Europe is wild enough for that kind of work, but there's other restoration work that Europeans can celebrate and we can speak about some of those, but specifically the gray wolves in Yellowstone Park. Folks have to be mindful that historically the gray wolf was one of the most widely distributed large mammals in the world. In North America, for example, you could find gray wolves from coast to coast, east to west and north to south. You could find gray wolves in the desert. You could find them in the swamps. You could find them in the grasslands. You could find them in the mountains. Gray wolves did really well wherever there was large game that they could they could live on. The far north in the Arctic all the way to central Mexico. And, and then starting in the 1700s, a war was waged on the gray wolf in, in North America that lasted 200 plus years and eventually drove the species to the brink of extinction. For example, in uh, the continental United States, William, you took this wildly common large carnivore, the gray wolf, represented by hundreds of thousands of individuals in tens of thousands of families. And, and that's the principal social unit for a gray wolf is a family. Uh, a, a wolf pack is just a family. A wolf pack is typically mom and dad and, and their offspring from successive generations. A wolf pack is mom and dad and, and a two-year-old and a yearling and this year's litter of puppies. And so a wolf pack might be eight, nine, ten animals strong and is principally a family. Tens of thousands of families, hundreds of thousands of individuals until the war started. And by the late 1950s, the gray wolf had been completely eliminated from the continental United States, except for a few hundred individuals in the far northeastern corner of Minnesota. That prompted outcry, and ultimately the public responded by doing things like supporting Congress's passage of the Endangered Species Act, a federal law that's one of the most important pieces of legislation in the world for saving creation, for saving biological diversity for saying we're going to stand in opposition to extinction. And we can speak more about that in a moment. But nonetheless, so by the mid-1970s, there was this groundswell of support for restoring the gray wolf to some parts of its original range where it had been exterminated, including at the top of the list was Yellowstone National Park, the world's most famous national park, the world's first national park, the park that gave rise to all the national parks around the world, Gray Wolf should be restored to Yellowstone National Park. The idea was first really considered in detail in the mid-1940s by some forward-thinking biologists that said, holy mackerel, can't we put the Gray Wolf back in some spots like Yellowstone? And that idea sat there and incubated for decades, was resurrected again in the 70s by passage of the Endangered Species Act. And by the 1990s, it became actionable, it being the restoration of gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park. I was honored to lead that effort initially. I was the first project leader for restoring gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park. It stood, William, and, and I am not a person prone to hyperbole. I think 
specific and precise language is valuable to promote understanding. So I choose these words very carefully. It was the most significant wildlife restoration project in the history of mankind, it being the restoration of the Gray Wolf to Yellowstone National Park. It was a grand honor to be part of it. We built a program that made a lot of sense. We were always ahead of schedule and under budget, in part because gray wolves are very good at what they do. They can make a bad plan make and make it look good. It was an honor to be part of that effort early on. And it gave rise, the program is so significant in its own right, but it gave rise to yet another historic first. After I led that effort for a while, uh, it captured the attention of a lot of important decision makers. President Clinton, for example, came and spent quiet time with me in the park because he wanted an up-close view, up-close and personal view of the Wolf Project. He wanted to see what all the hoopla was about. Another individual was Ted Turner and his then wife, Jane Fonda. They came to the park and wanted to see what all the excitement was about. One thing led to another, and over the course of about 18 months following Ted's visit, he and I had found sufficient common ground between ourselves to co-found what has stood as the world's most significant private effort in the world to use reintroductions to restore populations of imperiled species, that effort being known as the Turner Endangered Species Fund. I have been honored to serve as the executive director of the fund since its inception in 1997. The Yellowstone Project was a masterful bit of restoration magic. Can I ask, Mike, some people might be listening in and say wolves. So what? Like, why was the war started in the first place? Was there myths about wolves? Were they endangering people and then they were killed off? What difference has it made to, to Yellowstone Park? There's one thing that has always stood in the wolf's future. And it's the one thing that prompted people to kill it, massively kill it for no good reason. And the one thing was the mythical wolf, this notion that the gray wolf has supernatural abilities to exercise its predatory will on a whim. The gray wolf can kill whenever it wishes and it leaves in its wake death and destruction wherever it goes. That's the mythical wolf. As it turns out, the real wolf is not even a shadow of its mythical self. Sadly, the myth is as wrong as it is strong. The real wolf struggles. Every day, it struggles. The real wolf is very poorly suited for its life as a predator. The real wolf is relatively small. The real wolf, North America, for example, well, United States, let's say, the continental, the real wolf might weigh on average, if I blend males and females, and males are about 20% bigger than females, but let's blend them. Let's say the average gray wolf in the United States weighs 90 pounds. The, the, the real wolf lives on big game, deer, elk, moose, bison. The real wolf lives on things much, much bigger than itself. The real wolf lives on things that are very determined themselves to live and are very capable. A big 600-pound elk is not going to simply sit there, William, and let you chew his ass off. He's going to fight like the Dickens to survive. 
and he's got some powerful feet. Years ago, I did a study in Alaska looking at the frequency of traumatic injury to gray wolf skulls. I was able to access about 225 skulls that had been collected by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. These were gray wolves that had been shot by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game to minimize predation pressure on a local caribou population, for example. So I was looking at skulls that came from wolves that had been killed by gunshot wounds. I looked at the skulls for evidence of blunt force trauma. How often do they get kicked in the head by a moose, for example? William, fully a quarter of the skulls showed a broken nose, a broken jaw, a broken skull. It's very difficult making a living in the woods with your teeth because these prey animals don't just give up. Gray wolves are small. They get injured a lot. We know from reliable studies, as you think about all of these natural history patterns that I share, know that the gray wolf was one of the most studied large mammals in the world. When I speak about these patterns, know that they're defined by a large number of reliable studies. So here's an important pattern. Most of the time when a gray wolf hunts, it fails. Seven, eight times out of 10, that wolf comes up empty pawed. They get hurt a lot. They fail a lot. They're not well suited to the task at hand because they're small. Their teeth stop growing. They break and they wear down. Their teeth don't grow forever. You're a beaver. You're a gnawing rodent. Beaver have ever-growing teeth. That's a really good idea if you're a gnawing rodent. Gray wolves don't have teeth that grow their entire lifetime. By about 10, 11 months of age, their teeth are as big as they're ever going to get. From that point forward, they simply get smaller or they break. They have all of these liabilities. It's very common in any wolf population that you study anywhere around the world. It's very common to note that starvation is an important source of mortality. The gray wolf's entire system is built on feast or famine. They go many days with no food at all because they're coming up empty pawed. And then when they do have a chance to eat, they have this capacity to consume a large quantity of food all at once, feast or famine. When you look at all of those liabilities and think, holy mackerel, how is this real wolf even able to make it? and they are supremely successful, here's how they make it. In light of all of those liabilities, they have two assets that overwhelm the liabilities. Two assets. They are doggedly determined. They wake up every night and they go to work. And for a wolf, going to work means that she's got to put seven to 10 pounds of food in her belly on average every day. Now, they go many days with no food at all, but on average, seven to 10 pounds of food per wolf per day to maintain good health and the ability to be sufficiently vigorous to breed. Seven to 10 pounds a day. They're doggedly determined. They get up every night and she goes to work. And for a wolf, going to work means you, you go hunt. That's a great asset, this dogged determination. And the second asset, they are supremely social. They find great strength in numbers. Gray wolves are one of the most social mammals in the world. I said earlier, their world revolves around the pack is principally a family. There's non-family members in packs too, but there is no doubt the pack is a family. That's their unit of organization. That's how they make it. 
They find strength in numbers. They're supremely social. They're doggedly determined. Those two characteristics overwhelm their liabilities. And they are wildly successful because of those two things. That's the real wolf. The real wolf is a, he's a grinder. The real wolf is a family man. That's not with the mythical wolf at all. And yet people are gravitated to the mythical wolf. We, we gravitate in the direction of things that go bump in the night. Gray wolves don't go bump in the night. They quietly try to get from A to Z like any other wildlife. Ironically, and I've done this work for 40 years. I know this to be the case without doubt. Living with the real wolf, coexisting with the real wolf is a relatively straightforward affair that requires only a modicum of accommodation. Living with the mythical wolf is an impossibility. And it's the mythical wolf that tends to attract too much attention. Can I ask about the data then and what that suggests about the danger to people? Is it like 15%, 5%? Minus 0. 0.005. What is it? What's the percentage of wolves that actually might attack a human? Oh, gee whiz. There's no discernible threat by gray wolves at all. And it's really weird. It's really weird. If they were a threat in any measurable way, you'd know it. Gray wolves are uh, abundant in certain parts of Europe. They've always been in northeastern Minnesota. They've always been in Canada. They've always been in Alaska in healthy numbers. And yet over the long sweep of time where we've paid attention, say 100 years, there's virtually no verified, reliable accounts of gray wolves attacking people. I, I know of one case, one case in rural Alaska, and, and this is very sad, and the data suggests that these wolves preyed upon her. She was jogging in a remote part of Alaska and she came across this group of wolves and they killed her. That's the only reliable account that I know of. Now, you think about that for a moment. Why, why is that the case? Cougars represent a threat to people. A cougar will kill you, a mountain lion. Black bears have killed people and hurt people. Grizzly bears have killed people and hurt people. Moose have killed people and hurt people. Lots of wildlife can hurt people, not gray wolves. A couple of things to take away from that. Why would, why would that be? It may have to do with their sociality. Gray wolves are so supremely social. They're looking for connections. Now, you can also register this fact. Gray wolves are the stock for all domestic dogs. It is fair to conclude in this day and age that dogs are wolves among us. And, and we do so well with dogs in part because they're so very willing to accept us. They find us as acceptable compadres, acceptable companions. They're intimate with us. Dogs are wolves among us. When you go back into the archaeological world and think about domestication of animals, there's no doubt the first domesticated animal not in form necessarily, but certainly in function. The first domesticated animal was a gray wolf. If you go back to archaic peoples, hunter-gatherers kicking around 3,000 years ago, there is no doubt that they had a collegial 
mutually beneficial relationship with gray wolves. That it wouldn't have been uncommon for a small band of hunter-gatherers to be escorted by and include a small number of gray wolves that had, for whatever reason, been socialized and felt some connection to that hunter-gatherer band. So let's imagine you and I, William, are part of a group of 15 archaic peoples, six adult males and four adult females and a handful of youngins, and that's our group. And we live the transitory life of a band of hunter-gatherers. And we've got a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. And what do they do? What do kids that age do back in the day? They wander around the wilds and entertain themselves, right? That's what kids do. I promise you those kids would know where the local wolf den was. And so one day they got nothing else to do. They go into the den and they fart fiddle around and come back with a puppy. Because why not? Puppy's cute. I can carry it. It's warm. It's manageable. And I keep that puppy around, and pretty soon that puppy's six months old, nine months old, and hasn't left. And I throw it scraps, and it grabs scraps, and so it's surviving. And then pretty soon it's 18 months old, and it's going out with you and me on a hunt. And it helps detect things that we wouldn't detect otherwise. I promise you, you me, and a canid would be more aware than just you and me. And all of a sudden, there's this advantage of having that 18-month-old animal still be around. And one thing leads to another. I think this went on all the time. There's no doubt when you look at the record, gray wolves are the first domesticated animal. They weren't a chihuahua. They weren't a Labrador retriever. There wasn't selective breeding going on. But there was this relationship based on mutually similar ends. I need security. I need food. Wolf needs security. It needs food. This makes sense. And that precipitated over and over again. Maybe that's why, because of the gray wolf's innate sociality, they don't represent a threat to human safety. Let me tell you a quick story about human safety. At the beginning of the Yellowstone Wolf Project, we had the Soda Butte Pack. It went outside the park and it restricted its movements to the flanks of a piece of ground known as the Lazy EL Ranch. It was a livestock operation. And the soda beet pack wasn't going anywhere. We thought, holy mackerel, this is a recipe for disaster. Even though gray wolves typically don't depredate on livestock, they sometimes do, especially if they're around livestock. So we put a biologist on the ranch and we said, just please watch what's going on. And if a problem starts to develop, at least we're there and we can respond quickly. A couple of weeks pass and the wolves still aren't going anywhere. The holy mackerel, the only reason they're going to stay on the flanks of the lazy EL ranch is if they've got a den site. This is a recipe for disaster. We've got to grab all of the adult wolves and the puppies and bring them back to the park to avoid a train wreck. So that was the plan. We're going to catch the, the Druid Peak pack and bring them back to the park. Here was the capture plan. We have a plane in the air that would spot the adults. And then the spotter plane would radio to a helicopter. There's an adult over there at two o'clock. You can go dart that adult. Helicopter swoop down, dart the adult. Now we've got one adult. Do that two or three times, you've got all the adults. That's a tried and true approach. It only works if we know for sure the puppies are still committed to a hole in the ground because if they're not committed to the den, but rather run away, you can't catch the adults by darting them from a helicopter and leave the puppies on the ground and you can't dart them, they're too little. 
and it's, you can't do anything if the puppies don't go in the den. If they're still not committed to the hole in the ground that is the den, you have to do something else to bring the pack back. Okay. So my job was to sneak in on the Soda Butte pack to see if the puppies were still committed to a hole in the ground. Fine. All the adults are radio collared. I put my headphones on and I can radio track on the ground and get really close to the adults. Not a big deal. I'm going to sneak in on the pack when we think they're at the den site. And my objective is to see, can I get the puppies to jump in the hole in the ground? Can I drive the puppies in the den? If I've got the puppies in the den, then we can catch the adults because I can always crawl in and grab the pocket. Okay, here's the plan. I'm fixing the lead to sneak in on these six adults at the den site, mind you. And the matriarch of the Lazy EO Ranch said to me, Mike, can I come along? And I thought for once, sure. And then her sister said, can I come? I said, oh, okay, all right. So I'm sneaking up on six adult gray wolves at a den site with two older women behind me. And on one occasion, Wayne, I'd stop, take my headphones off, and I'd turn and I'd say, shh, you're stepping on the twigs. You've got to be more quiet. And we'd continue with our sneak. William, we got within 10 feet of the adults before they knew we were there. They jumped up, ran off into the woods. The puppies immediately jumped right back in the den site. I sit in the middle, of, in the front of the den. The puppies can't come out. I got them. They're in the hole. Now we can dart the adults, which we did. I crawled in and grabbed all the puppies and took everybody back to Yellowstone National Park and let them go again. And they did really quite well. Here's the point of that story. I would never sneak in on a pack of adult wolves at a den site with two older women if I thought the wolves represented any threat to our safety. Shh, you got to stop stepping on the sticks. They simply don't represent a threat to human safety. Now, that said, I would say to your listeners, if you're in wolf country, don't go looking for trouble. You should respect all wildlife. But for the most part, Gray wolves do not represent any measurable threat to human safety. They just don't. Such a wonderful anecdote. I feel like I'm listening into an audio version of a nature documentary. And speaking of nature documentaries, I recall a number of months ago, I was watching a nature documentary and actually featured Yellowstone Park and the ecosystem, how it thrived due to the reintroduction of wolves. So not, number one is that you saved a species. There were many benefits then to Yellowstone Park as a result of this. Sure. Some people, I think, overstate the importance of wolves as ecological engineers. There are very good data that show under certain circumstances, gray wolves and the predatory activities can precipitate what we might call a trophic cascade. A cascade of effects that filter through the trophic system, filter through the food system. And they do this because they kill things. And, and consequently, they make things less common than they might be otherwise. If gray wolves kill enough elk, then there are fewer elk browsing on willows and aspen. That might allow willows and aspen become more common. That brings about a host of consequential effects. More willows along a stream create more shade, 
which keeps the stream cooler than it would be otherwise, improving habitat for cold water fish like cutthroat trout. Mo willows and aspen provide more useful habitat for small birds. So they are able to do better and all. And that, this is the whole notion of a trophic cascade, that predatory activities can create consequences that filter through the whole system. There's no doubt that in some cases that is absolutely what happens as a consequence of predation. There is clear evidence from Yellowstone National Park that when gray wolves were added to the carnivore guild as just a collection of carnivores in an area, before gray wolves, the carnivore guild of Yellowstone was pretty rich anyway. It had black bears, it had grizzly bears, it had cougars, it had coyotes, it had wolverines, it had foxes. It was a pretty rich guild. Gray wolves were a significant addition, however. So now you've got a really rich guild of carnivores, including gray wolves. And that's when we began to see clear evidence that predation was creating these system-wide ecological effects. That a trophic cascade began to manifest itself. I believe it's real. Predation matters as an ecological process. And, and, and it's a consequence of gray wolves being sufficiently common for a sufficient period of time. One gray wolf in Yellowstone National Park for one day doesn't make a whit of ecological difference. 100 gray wolves in Yellowstone Park for 30 years? Oh, no, that's beginning to look like magic. That's enough opportunity for, for predation to have these system-wide effects. But here's a more simple explanation of why predation matters. William, I think you and I could agree that one of the most powerful forces in the universe, in all the heavens that have been studied, one of the most powerful forces is the force of life. The force of life. It's a powerful force. If that's the case, then the opposite of life has to be nearly equally important. And that, of course, would be death. If life is important, then so is death. If you make a living by delivering death, in other words, you're a predator, you have to matter. You have to matter. There's simply no way it works otherwise. If life is important, death is important. If you make a living delivering death, you have to matter in an ecological sense. William, when you look at the wondrous diversity of life all around you, Go outside your office and look at the wondrous diversity of the natural world. Most of that diversity is a consequence of everything trying to stay one step ahead of death. It has to matter. Of course, gray wolves matter. Of course, they have the capacity to be great ecological engineers. They deliver death in order to survive. That has to matter in an ecological sense. That's the fundamental notion behind trophic cascades. But for it to operate, for it to operate, gray wolves have to be sufficiently common for a sufficient period of time. A small number of wolves for a short period of time anywhere doesn't make a whit of ecological difference. A good number of wolves in an area for a good amount of time, that begins to feel like ecological magic of the finest kind. So, Mike, I want to move now to leadership lessons and i think the messages you've de delivered and the nuances there of the the small things that can make a big difference is what this podcast is all about 
So I often talk about your project when I'm teaching certain workshops on organizational systems and culture, because it's very much, it's interconnected. And do you have an understanding of your own leadership presence and leadership insights and how you've led these teams and your work? Is there something that you could share with our listeners here on leadership? Yeah, there are certain things that have made a difference for me since I was little. I don't believe there's value in overstating. Quite the contrary, I would rather accept my shortcomings firmly inside my own head and recognize that really what I have to offer is a willingness to try. That's all I can guarantee. I can guarantee effort. After that, William, lots of things affect an outcome. Nothing has to affect my willingness to try. There's value, I think, in this notion of under-promising and over-delivering. There's value in this notion of not expecting your teammates to do anything you wouldn't try to do yourself. I've got some teammates that are deeply talented, and they can do things that I would never be able to do, but I'd be willing to try. I don't expect them to do things that I wouldn't do myself. I wouldn't expect them to work harder than I work. I think there's value in leaders being early to arrive and late to leave and being more committed to the cause than anyone else, very quietly. I think there's value in not celebrating fanfare. I don't think there's a great deal of value in spending time celebrating what I've done. I'm more interested in what I'm going to do. A lot of people get wrapped up, I think, with, with all the wrong things, and consequently, they don't listen well. They don't acknowledge their own shortcomings, and that goes back to my farewell speech in the Senate. What I know is not enough to serve well. I have to know what you know. I think the Turner Endangered Species Fund, my team, has been very good at following these very simple notions. We over-deliver. We don't care about credit. We don't make promises we can't keep. Tell me a little bit more about your work then with the Turner Endangered Species Fund. See, you talked to us about where there was a lot of noise created about Yellowstone Park. And then yourself and Ted and Jane start talking and suddenly you're setting up a fund. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, it's decidedly Ted Turner-esque. Here's what happened. Ted and Jane came to the park. And, and uh, they wanted to see all of us. We had a great day. And they left. They left. And about two weeks later, I get a phone call at night. I'm at home with the kids, and they're giving me a hard time. And I answer the phone rather rudely. Hello. And this woman on the phone, she says, this is Mike. I said, yeah, it's Mike. She said, Mike Phillips. I said, yeah, it's Mike. She said, oh, this is Jane Fonda. I said, oh, Jane. <laughs> she was. She said, uh, we want you to talk to some of our teammates here. We'd like to organize a visit for them to come. I said, great. She put them on the phone and we, we organized a visit for some of their staff from the Turner Foundation to come and visit the project. And when we finished, I, I said, can you please put Ms. Fonda back on the phone? And, and they did. And, and I said to Ms. Fonda, thank you so much for engaging. And I really didn't think that you and Ted would be able to do anything, but thank you. And, and honestly, William, she said to me, this is back in 19, I get my ears mixed up. It would be 1980, I'm sorry, 1994. She said, Mike, ask and ye shall receive. I said, fair enough. 
Okay. So the staff came and we talked about things and imagine that maybe the Turner Foundation would be able to provide some grant money to the Yellowstone Wolf Project. That was very nice. And that ended. I would prepare a proposal. And no, no big deal. I'm sitting at my office a month or two later and the phone rings and I answer the hello and there's this guy on the other end of the phone yelling at me, Mike. I said, yeah, this is Mike yelling. So this is Ted. Oh, Ted. Mr. Turner, what's up? I said, Mike, I want you to come to the Flying D Ranch. I want to have lunch together. Flying D Ranch is one of Ted's properties outside Bozeman, Montana. So it was close to Yellowstone National Park. So I said, sure. So I drove from the park to the Flying D Ranch and had lunch with Ted. And Ted said, Mike, I just bought Vermejo Park Ranch in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. Vermeo Park Ranch is really big, William. It's a, about a thousand square miles. It's about a, a quarter of the size of Yellowstone Park. It's a big piece of private ground. And Ted wanted to restore gray wolves to Vermejo Park Ranch. He was so excited by the Yellowstone Wolf Price. He said, Mike, I want you to restore gray wolves to Vermejo. And, and I studied Vermejo and over the course of the next couple of weeks. And I got back to Ted and I said, Ted, Vermejo is a fine piece of ground. Congratulations for owning it. There's a lot of wonderful conservation work that you can do there, including some really fascinating work on behalf of rare and vanishing species. But it's too small for a gray wolf project. Gray wolves need access to millions and millions of acres of public land. And Vermejo's not that. Maybe, Ted, someday Vermejo will be part of a big state or federal wolf restoration project connected to western Colorado and northern New Mexico based on the millions and millions of acres of public land in western Colorado and northern New Mexico. And Vermejo is part of that mix, but by itself, Vermejo is entirely too small. But <laughs> in the meantime, we can work on that, Ted. We can work on moving the government forward for a wolf project that would connect to western Colorado and northern New Mexico and by default wrap up Vermejo in all of it too. We can get wolves on Vermejo. It might take a long time and it has to be a governmental effort, but we can push that rock up the hill. In the meantime, we could also work on projects for imperiled plants, birds, fishes, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, invertebrates, we could build, Ted, a massive program that would illustrate that private land and private assets, your good fortune, can be used to help save creation. He said, great, let's do that. Write that up, pal. <laughs> I said, okay, fine. So I wrote up a little prospectus, proposal, if you will, it was entitled the NOAA Project. And I was likening Ted's ranches all across the country to arcs. And we would use these arcs to save creation. That was the genesis of the Turner Endangered Species Fund. And we have been doing just that since 1997, when Ted and I finally came together. We have stood, we being the Turner Endangered Species Fund, and our sister organization, the Turner Biodiversity Divisions, we have stood as the most significant private effort in the world to use reintroductions to restore rare and vanishing species. Now, you might wonder, why does that matter? 
Why did it matter to Ted? Why does it matter to me? The extinction crisis, William, is one of humanity's most pressing and least attended problems. And it is on par with the five great extinction crises that have defined the planet over the last 500 million years that Mother Earth has supported multicellular life. The fifth crisis occurred about 65 million years ago when an asteroid slammed into the planet off of what is now the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula and in a geological instant ended the reign of the dinosaurs and gave rise to the reign of mammals. The sixth great extinction crisis uh, started at least during the Industrial Revolution in the late 1700s, if not centuries earlier as a consequence of humankind's activities. The driving force for the sixth great extinction crisis is not an asteroid, but rather humanity's pressing on the planet day after day. And you think about it, there have only been six great crises across 500 million years. They are decidedly unique. And I believe the extinction crisis is a effective clarion call for readjusting our relationship with Mother Earth. And it should matter no matter who you are. Look at it this way. Let's assume, William, that you're a person of faith. You're a person of faith. How can you love the creator and not love the creation? And if you love something, how can you stand by and watch it needlessly destroyed without rising in defense? Or let's assume the alternative. Let's assume rather than faith, you believe it's logic, data, empiricism that matter most. Let's assume that you're a secular humanist. The most reliable knowledge we have, science, tells us that the fate of humanity has always been and will always be a function of the health of local landscapes the world over. And yet the extinction crisis makes clear that those landscapes are not the least bit healthy. No matter who you are, a person of faith or a secular humanist, the extinction crisis should motivate you to action. It certainly did Ted, and it has me for 40 some years. I'm glad we've got to some conclusion anyways that there's no room in Ireland for wolves. The debate yeah. seems to be over <laughs> there, uh, even though there yeah, are don't, wolves. Don't y'all have a bunch of sheep? Do y'all have a bunch of sheep? <laughs> you got a bunch. Yeah, wolves and sheep don't mix real well. They, they don't kill that many sheep, but it, it may be that certain parts of the world are too humanized for gray wolves. I, I will say this as a restoration ecologist. It is simply a fact that some species aren't going to be restorable. The red wolf is struggling in the southeastern United States. It may not be recoverable. And in my mind, I saddle up against this simple notion that despite all the king's men and all the king's horses, sometimes Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again. <laughs> I'm glad we recorded that, Mike. <laughs> so let's talk about the future. And there's legislation coming in where organizations and companies will have to report on ESG, environmental social governance. So for the people who may be in a senior position in large organizations, whether it be utilities or pharmaceuticals or tech or retail or manufacturing or food, whatever it may be, 
how can people contribute to making a difference? I would say to leaders of the business world, it is essential that we stop denying negative externalities. What I mean by negative externality, William, a negative externality is when there's a, a harm created and no payment received. A classic negative externality would be you contract lung cancer as a consequence of inhaling secondhand smoke and you don't get paid for it. You get screwed, done nothing wrong, but you get screwed and you don't get compensated. When you look at the business world today, we've got all kinds of negative externalities that we simply ignore. We've got to stop ignoring those externalities. They're being passed to future generations. We, we have to have an accounting system that properly addresses all costs of production, distribution, and consumption today so that we pay our fair price today, that we don't expect some of the cost of my lifestyle to be paid for by future generations. That would be extending that externality, that negative externality to a future generation. We need to stop doing that. The business world needs to stop allowing for negative externalities to be ignored. They need to be accounted for today. So we're dealing fairly with all of the consequences, both positive and negative, of producing, distributing, and consuming goods. In other words, living. And in the process of doing that, we need to acknowledge that Mother Earth is a finite system there's only so much of her to go around and we have to stop abusing her and be more inclined to restore her. In other words, we need to abandon an extractive mentality where negative externalities are ignored in favor of a restorative mentality where negative externalities are accounted for today. There's no other way to be fair. And I don't know who would argue that unfair makes more sense than fair. There are three great, in my mind, William, collective endeavors that move humanity. And because this problem of negative externalities and a, and a, uh, a, a relationship with Mother Earth based on exploitation rather than restoration, what moves humanity matters. There's three great endeavors that collectively move us in big numbers, religion, is a collective endeavor that moves us. Politics, collective endeavor that moves us. And germane to this conversation is the third collective endeavor that moves us. That's the marketplace. That's the marketplace. For the most part, William, everybody alive today buys what they need, food, cover, water, space. Everybody needs food, cover, water, space. We buy it in the marketplace. Consequently, the business community represents a grand opportunity to move the collective in a useful direction by embracing a restorative mentality where all the costs of production, distribution, and consumption are accounted for today. That is an essential ecologically based message to the business world. You guys and gals have grand opportunity to move humanity in a direction where we're living with Mother Earth, rather than on her and exhausting her. A little side note here. My uncle, Sean, 
Lilia's dad, who who was passed away, no one may rest in peace. He was a big influencer for me with a focus, a major focus on nature and the environment uh, when I was younger. And I think of myself as a small child and being influenced by that. And then I think about his youngest, Roisin, and, and she's starting out in her career. And I talk about, I think about my own sons, that next generation, where people are starting out about their career and the, people are a lot more focused on the environment now. What advice would you give them, A, about careers and B, about conservation the environment. Yeah, I would agree with your premise that we live in a world of ecological illiteracy. Most folks don't understand the basics of how the planet operates. They don't understand that nutrient cycle and energy flows. They don't understand that the biosphere is fragile. They look to the sky and they think to themselves, oh my gosh, how can CO2 matter? I the sky goes on forever. In fact, the atmosphere is a rather thin envelope around the planet that has been significantly changed as a consequence of humankind activities. People struggle with the scale of nature, and, and, and so they get confused, and this confusion promotes illiteracy. They, they struggle with the small scale of nature. They struggle with the large scale of nature. And so we're surrounded by confused people. Confused people don't make very good decisions. But this goes back to my sense of optimism about climate change. I don't have to, I don't have to necessarily educate seven and a half billion people. I got to educate the small fraction of those who are decision makers. There, there's one thing that we can say about humankind without the least bit reservation. And that is we are decidedly tribal people. Humans are tribal. It's one of our great strengths. It's one of our great weaknesses. But by the very definition of being tribal, it means that there's a couple of decision makers. And mostly folks are followers. We have to make sure that our decision makers are gifted in the ways of the natural world so that they understand, oh, really, the atmosphere is a thin envelope and has been violated. And consequently, we, we need to address heat trapping gases in the atmosphere with vigor, or we're going to create a planet that will be largely uninhabitable for billions and billions of people. That simple fact will create desperation. And desperate people do desperate things. Consequently, there'll be more and more civil unrest because desperate people do desperate things. I, I would only suggest that we have got to exercise one of the most important forces we have, that being the force of politics, mindful that it's a small number of people that run the place and make sure we've done everything possible to ensure they're the best people for the job of running the place. Mike, that's been such an insightful conversation to have so we're coming to the end of the, the podcast here. And if people were to... I mean, the listeners are sufficiently bored at this point. No, they... no, because I'm going to... I'm going to... Yeah. I, I always have a sneaky question for my, my guests. My question is, what we talked about your past career. What does the future hold for you and especially the Turner Endangered Species Fund? I am so proud of my boss and friend, Ted Turner. M maybe many of your listeners won't know of Ted, but... 
He is a uh, decidedly unique and significant American and citizen of this world. And he intends to have impact long after his earthly existence has ended through his estate plan. And Ted has hard-earned good fortune. So we have the opportunity to do good based on Ted's good fortune. Through his estate plan, he's made assurances that the, the work of the Turner Endangered Species Fund and the Turner Biodiversity Divisions, for example, there's a host of entities that that orbit in the Turnerverse, all of which are, are doing good. Ted is a great citizen of the world. Your, your listeners may not recall, but many years ago, Ted was one of the first that stepped out with a big donation, a billion dollar donation to the United Nations. As a citizen of the world, he thought that making a contribution commensurate with his good fortune was appropriate. He is a a world-class citizen of the finest kind and is working hard to ensure that after his earthly existence has ended, the good work of Team Turner will continue. So I'm proud to say we'll be here working hard on behalf of creation to do our fair share, maybe a bit more, to redress the extinction crisis. That's the big plan. For me, William, I'm going to go fishing. <laughs> At some point, I'm going fishing. If you go fishing, I think I might join you. And <laughs> I remember using those Japanese fishing rods. I think that's going to be a, a great way to spend time. Yeah, that's you. right. That 10 car rod that you fished on Cherry Creek with on the Flying Deer Ranch in Montana. You had too many beers in you at that point, William. You really weren't casting very well. I did get one, though. <laughs> and we threw it straight back in. So if people were to find out more about you and your work and the Turner Endangered Species Fund, how might they Well, as of yesterday, I would have said, gee whiz, go to our website, tesf.org. However, <laughs> as luck would have it, we're doing a redesign, so the website is offline. But Ted is such a notable figure and a beautiful individual in all ways that matter, along with his family. They've done beautiful work for a long time. And as I said, Ted is working hard to ensure that work can continue in perpetuity. You just Google Ted Turner and websites will pop up, the Ted Turner website, and it speaks to a lot of the great work done by Team Turner. And then that's how you can find, that's how you can find what we've done and what we intend to do. Thank you for asking that. Me personally, I'm just a banana in the bunch, dudes. Mike, it has been a pleasure having the time to speak with you again. It's such a pity it's not in person like last time. As always, it has been so thoroughly fun, insightful and engaging. It was very easy to listen to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's my privilege. It really is my honor. Thank you for thinking I might have some stories that would be of interest. You need to come back to Montana. I will provide some really good scotch. I don't mean to offend your Irish background. I'll provide some good scotch. And we will fish Cherry Creek once again and have too much fun, pal. Appreciate that. Thanks, William, Mike, for joining the Workplace Podcast. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and review it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. 
As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.